You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I'm just going to mention one of the basic rules of uh, inductive Bible study is to note repetitive words. Note repetitive words. That'll give you the main theme of the section we're reading. Has anyone caught it yet? Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You may be seated. In Romans chapter 9, we've spent many weeks observing Israel's past. Chapters 9 through 11 are all about Israel. Chapter 9, Israel's past. And we dove in the biblical truth and God's sovereign purpose in election. Today we come to chapter 10, which the emphasis goes from God's sovereignty to some of the human factors such as the need for an understanding of the gospel, verses 5 through 13. The need for the proclamation of the gospel, verses 14 and 15. And for the response of faith to the gospel, verses 16 through 21. So here in Romans chapter 10, Paul moves from Israel's past election to their present rejection of the Messiah and needing to believe in the gospel hopes that they'll believe in the gospel so that chapter 11 will come about we'll get there in a few weeks that all Israel would be saved that God still has a plan for Israel as we come to chapter 10 we see Paul continuing with his subversive writing this subversion recognizes a problem and it challenges a problem with the purpose of overthrowing it Subversion is often used in military contexts to go in, subvert, and overthrow the bad guys. You've heard that before. Subvert al-Qaeda. Subvert the terrorists. Overthrow them and replace them with democracy. 
In this case, we look at ideas and we look at world views. And Paul brings the gospel to challenge world views, the authorities of the world, to subvert them and to replace them. If you have a cancer, a surgeon recognizes that authority of the cancer, that it will have control over your body, and that surgeon goes in with the intention to overthrow the cancer. We live in the age of documentaries on TV, and you all know that documentaries typically go in with an intent to challenge something, such as the supersized meal from McDonald's, or how the chicken nugget is made. You go in with the intent to challenge something and to overthrow it, presenting something such as nutritious fruits and veggies in its place. The gospel is very subversive. The gospel is very confrontational. That one God created all things, men and women, in his image to serve, worship, and honor him, to love him above all else. But those men and women de-godded God and worship the created thing rather than the creator who's forever blessed. And while we are in rebellion against our God who created us in his great love, he came in the flesh and served us and laid down his life as a ransom for many, spilling his blood at the mountain called Calvary. That if anyone would believe on this shed blood of the Son of God, they would no longer be enemies at enmity with God, but they would be saved, they would be born again, they would be given a new heart and a new mind that they could know God and understand God and love God and want God once again. All of this is towards the purpose of restoring what once was and that is shalom in the Garden of Eden. Shalom in paradise. Worshiping and walking with God in the cool of the day. One theologian spoke of subversion taking place in Jesus' life, from the cradle to the cross to the crown, Jesus came in and challenged the worldview of the enemy, the lies and the deceptions that have crept into our minds, and he attacked from the manger to Golgotha to the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for us. As we read the Gospel, as we read Romans chapters 1 through 16, our sin nature is challenged. The Holy Spirit attempts to subvert it so it may be overthrown and brought back to God's heart. Paul confronts sin. Paul confronts self-righteousness. And wherever the gospel goes, it confronts. There's a problem that needs to be addressed, and if we love people, we'll speak the truth in love. As Mark Deaver said, the beginning of any solution is clarity about the problem. Paul has brought clarity from chapter 1 on, where he says the issue, the problem, is idolatry. We've stopped worshiping the Creator and worship ourselves and everything else before God. Paul gives us some tips and tricks just throughout the outline of the chapter and how to explain the problem and how to bring the solution in a way that people could understand. And in this chapter, Paul confronts sin. He shows us the problem is our self-righteousness. I want to repeat that so there's no confusion. The problem Paul addresses is, is our, mine and yours, self-rightness. Self 
righteousness. Is there a way to it's attacked in the book of Romans. It's really the hook of the book. Is that we are saved not by self, but by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. First of all, Paul shows us that in our subjection, in our uh, sub, excuse me, blank in here, subversion, in our subversion, in our confronting, first of all, there needs to be affection. There needs to be affection. How does the tone sound in verse 1? Does it sound aggressive and cruel? Does it have an I'm better than you attitude? Or do you see affection? I love the J.B. Phillips yeah. translation where he says, My yeah. brothers, from the bottom of my heart, I love and pray to God that Israel might be saved. Paul's deep heart for the lost, again, is poured out here. It correlates with chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. If you'll just look over, probably a page in your Bible, where Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law, service of God, promises, from whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Paul loved his people, Israel. And he knew Israel's role was to go to the rest of the world and to love people. Paul loved and had affection for the lost. He didn't think of himself as superior. He thought of himself as being saved from being damned and longed for his brothers to be saved as well. I love, I think Blaine is where I heard it the first time, when Blaine said, you know what, I'm just a beggar who knows where the bread is. And that's Paul. He's just someone, he knows he's been saved by grace, and he knows where the bread is. He wants his brothers to come to Jesus. He says, my heart's desire. But then he also says something else. He says, and prayer to God is that they may be saved. When we come to confront people and to attack their worldview, we need to have affection, but we also need to have intercession. Affection and intercession. Intercession speaks of prayer. Heartfelt, continued prayer. We can't even think about proclaiming the gospel rightly without being freed up. This rebellion issue in the world, this sin issue, is not just a rational problem that we can say, okay, your problem is A, B, and C, and I want to apply, apply X, Y, and Z to this issue. There, you're fixed. No, the issue is a spiritual issue. The natural man can't comprehend the things of God unless the Spirit of God reveals it to them. We cannot preach the gospel or bring application unless we come in the Spirit and prayerfully. As Spurgeon said, oh, for more prayer, 
Let us cry to God in secret and in the family and in all our assemblies that God would save the sons of men. But prayer, if it is sincere, is always attended by effort. I had the privilege of doing Adam and Lauren's wedding yesterday. And in doing their pre-marriage counseling, something that kept coming up is that they wanted their wedding to be more than a wedding, to be more than about themselves. But they knew many of their friends and family that were coming were lost and were unsaved. And so we began to pray nearly every session for that wedding day to cultivate the ground that the seed could go upon it and bear much fruit and not be choked out by the weeds. And then it was just amazing at the Pulse on Thursday night, we spent a good chunk of the time praying over this wedding, just crying out. And I, I didn't do it, but I wanted to text Adam during prayer. We are praying like heartfelt intercession over your wedding, man. No, it's covered. And then praying and praying and praying. And then on the way to the wedding, to drive with my family in the car and say, from the time we leave the driveway to the time we get to the field where the wedding was, we're praying. We're cultivating the ground. But it wasn't just praying about sharing the gospel or the gospel would be received. Then I had to go in the power of the Holy Spirit and submit my body as an instrument, as a vessel for His Holy Spirit to speak through. And something that I've noted in about 12, 13, 14 years of just wanting to be an evangelist is that we've got to be available. We've got to be affectionate. We've got to have compassion. As Lauren walked down the aisle, I just was looking at the people and crying out for a broken heart for them. And as she came down, God, you know, as the, the wedding went on, God just opened up the opportunity to speak of the true and better wedding, the true and better union. That union, that covenant, that tie that's been made between Jesus and everyone that would believe on him. They would have a true and better marriage and union where we get to live out obedience and subjection, submission, where we get to have a head over us who not only said that he'd lay his life down for us, but he laid his life down for us. We prayed for the lost in this community. After chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, we cried out for compassion for the lost. But have you still been praying for their salvation? Have you been praying for the bikers and the firefighters and the people that work at City Hall and the people that work at Parks and Recs and the swim teachers? Have you been praying for our community? And then have you been offering up your vessel as an instrument of the gospel? In Exodus chapter 32, verse 7 through 14, we have an example from Moses where the Lord is very angry because of the golden calf. <laughs> Moses coming down the mountain finds the children of Israel have made a god and began to worship it. And then they entered into all kinds of sexual immorality and idolatrous pagan practices and God was angry. Moses was angry. The Lord said to Moses, go get down. The people you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They turned aside quickly. We just left Egypt. I just spoke the commandments. And he said, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to consume them. And Moses, I'll just start over and I'll make of you 
a great nation. Leave me alone. My wrath's going to burn hot against them. But Moses pleaded with the Lord God. And he said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, ha, he brought them out to harm them and to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? And Moses prayed. We can pray this over Prineville and Crook County, the city that you're from. We can pray, God, turn from your fierce wrath. Relent from doing this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants by the stars of heaven. And so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Something interesting, just the truth in scripture is that God and his sovereignty, he's got a plan going. And when people pray, the Lord hears and the Lord acts. And there are many in this town who are destined for the wrath of the Lamb. They are destined to be trampled out in the winepress of the wrath of God and to be crushed under his feet like grapes after the harvest. Do you pray for your co-workers who are destined for this wrath? Do you care enough to open up your mouth and to learn about them, where they're even coming from. And how you can take what they say and you can say, you know what? Jesus is better than that. Jesus is truer than that. You bring the word to the situation. Samuel cried out. He says, for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Lord, don't let us fall into that sin of not praying for our family, our friends, our co-workers. That God would turn his wrath away from them, as Jeremiah cries out in chapter 18, as Jesus cries out in Luke 13, and he looks over the city and he weeps, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you were not willing do you weep over this town is it your heart's desire that Primeville would get saved that every cowboy at the rodeo that every person at the horse races that everybody at the car shows that, that, that people get saved and Paul had such a heart for this then he said, you know what? I'll do what I have to do, and I'll become what I have to become, that I might win the weak. I will become all things to all men, that I, by, that I might by all means save some. What would you do to get the gospel to somebody? What would you do to get on their level and bring it home? Would you wear Wranglers? No. Would you do your hair a certain way? Would you wear glasses that don't have prescriptions in them? Would you wear skinny jeans? I don't know. <laughs> How much do you love people? How much do you care about them? How much do you care that on August 4th, we're going to be doing an outreach and we're going to be ornamenting the gospel through cotton candy, 
and through snow cones, and we're going to say, Jesus is the giver of the better cotton candy. He's the giver of the better snow cone. Do we care that Pablo Moreno has been equipping 40 kids to come across Oregon and to just preach the gospel? The gospel will be proclaimed here on August 4th. Please don't let it pass by. If you have any care for the lost in this town, rearrange your schedule. Be a part of what God's doing. I just don't want you to miss out. I don't want you to not be what God's created you to be. Reflecting His glory. Have a heart. Have affection for people. Have a heart of intercession for people. Remember uh, verse 2, Paul says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So the third thing we see when we confront worldviews, when we come in to subvert the authority of the enemy, is it's good to make observation. So affection, intercession, observation. Just as Paul's pain was increased in chapter 9 by Israel's combination of all of these privileges and prejudice, here in chapter 10, his longing is increased by their combination of zeal and ignorance. He observes they have a zeal for God. What do you observe about our community? What do you observe about our community? Perhaps a zeal for a God. <laughs> Perhaps a limited elementary understanding of some kind of creator. Paul observes that the Jews were sincere and zealous. He had no doubt about their sincerity. But it's possible to be sincere and sincerely wrong all at the same time. The Mormons come to your door very sincere. Very sincerely wrong. People that come to various outreaches, we are aware that there might be the moment of sincerity, the moment of zeal, but we don't just let that seed be cast upon any ground. We come and we pray and we ask the Lord to, God, help us to water this seed. Help us to, maybe even God, by your grace, Brush it over off the rock into the soft, cultivated soil and make disciples, not converts. That's our goal on August 4th. Make disciples. Spurgeon said, We feel very thankful when we see tears stream down from the cheek. But you know, people cry all the time at the theater. There's not much in it. Pray, God, it may not end in a shower of tears, but that the heart may bleed as well as the eyes weep. Will you join me in praying for bleeding hearts on August 4th? For bleeding hearts in this community that hear the good news of salvation by grace, not of works, and that hearts would bleed the Jews, very zealous. Jesus says in John 16, the day is coming when whoever kills you will think that they're offering God a favor. 
That's all throughout the book of Acts. Chapter 21, you see that the myriads of Jews who believed were all zealous for the law. He speaks of himself in his testimony in Acts 22, saying, I'm a Jew born of Tarsus, brought up at the feet of the well-known scholar Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law. I was zealous toward God as you all are today. Paul was zealous, as zealous as his contemporary. But he knew in Philippians 3, he writes that, that all of my zeal and works were like rubbish, chaff, and sewage in comparison to the excellency of knowing Christ. We pray that people won't just be zealous. Zeal, yeah, a virtue. But it's bad if it's without knowledge. John Stott says that fanaticism is zeal without knowledge, commitment without reflection, or enthusiasm without understanding. And fanaticism is a horrible and dangerous state to be in. God, we don't want to be fanatics here. We want to have knowledge of the truth, knowledge of the gospel. We want to be disciples who are students trained up at the feet of Jesus. Men and women who know the scripture and have it as the authority of their life. Men and women who are trained and equipped that they might go out and edify the church and make more disciples. This zeal is not according to knowledge. Proverbs 19 says, It's not good for a soul to be without knowledge. But he who sins hastens with his feet. Just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you right now. Lord, am I zealous? Am I as zealous as a Jew? You know, the Jews are still very zealous to this day. Multiple different types of Jews, secular Jews, Orthodox Jews, moderate Jews. But you know what? As zealous as they are, they're missing the knowledge of the truth. They might go to the Wailing Wall every day and bob their head a million times against the Western Wall stones, but they're going to burn in hell. You might come to Calvary Chapel every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night. You may be at the Pulse regularly. You might be part of the cleaning ministry or set up a teardown in the park. But are you zealous without knowledge? You know Jesus. To the full extent of the word gnosko, no. To know by experience. Have you experienced Jesus? And right now, just pray, God, if that's me, if I'm just zealous, if I'm just religious, on my way to hell, give me knowledge, give me truth. Paul speaks of a group of people in 2 Corinthians 4 whose mind the God of this age has blinded. They don't believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ should shine on them. Have you had the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ illuminate your heart and your mind? Or are you religious at best? One of my favorite prayers since high school has been, 
Paul's prayer, Philippians 1, 9, where he says, In this I pray, and I pray this for you today, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. So we have affection. We have intercession. Observation. And explanation. We have explanation in verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. And seeking to establish their own righteousness. Have not submitted to the righteousness of of God. Here we have Paul's explanation on top of his observation. These idols are exposed in his confrontation process. The question is not if you are an idolater or if you have a bent towards idolatry. The question is what are your idols? And when the Holy Spirit shows you them, tear them down. At the moment right here in chapter 10, he exposes and confronts the idolatry of self-righteousness to the Jews. This self-righteousness is based upon, first of all, ignorance, we see in verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's promises. There's an ignorance of even the righteousness of God. That it's to all and on all who would believe, not work, but believe, Romans 3 says. You know, Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But then what does he say? For in the gospel, what does he say, do you know? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. You guys know it? Just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Have a love for the gospel. All you have to do is speak out the gospel. And in it is the power, not in you, not in how you look, not in if you take your P90X that morning and now people will, no. It's in the message itself. It's just in the, the truth that pierces the hearts. It's the power of the gospel. It reveals righteousness. And the Jews and many of Prineville's inhabitants, perhaps you today, you're ignorant of God's righteousness. As Isaiah 51 verse 6 says, we can lift up our eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath. Beneath the heavens will vanish away like smoke. Smoke, the earth will grow old like a garment. Those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But listen to this. My salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will not be abolished. My righteousness will be forever. He says again two verses later. And my salvation is from generation to generation. Perhaps you have an ignorance of God's rightness. God's innocence. God's purity. God's holiness. And that it is not temporal. 
we can just get the old man out of the way and then we can move on, huh? Move on to ecumenicalism and unity in the world between the different religions and the different faiths. Just get the old creator out of here. He'll die off soon enough. No. The rightness of God is forever. Extending longer than the heavens or the earth themselves. The Spurgeon said, do you want to be saved by your own righteousness? You hold your righteousness up against God's righteousness and you want to be saved by your rightness? He says, do you know what kind of righteousness it must be? To be accepted, it must be perfect. That is to say, if you've committed one sin, you've stained your character in the sight of God. And your hope of perfect righteousness is gone. He goes on to say, mark what it requires of you. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your mind. Have you done that? From the moment you popped out of mama's womb, have you loved God with all your all? Have you loved your neighbor as yourself that much? You've loved them that much? Nobody's done that. That's a fulfillment of the law, Jesus says. And we couldn't do that. So God sent his son to stand at the gap and to do what we couldn't do because we're weak in this skin, we're weak in this flesh. We didn't even stand a chance to do it. And so, their sin and their idolatry, first of all, verse 3 shows it's based on their ignorance. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. Secondly, their idolatry comes from them being self-willed. Self-willed. They seek to establish their own righteousness, verse 3 says. Paul basically drops the gospel bomb on them and shows them that what drives their zeal is their selfishness and their pride and their self-righteousness and their self-will and that they refuse to submit to the righteousness that comes by grace. Literally, the translation says they wear themselves out trying to obtain God's favor. This is true of both the religious Jew and the pagan. The religious Jew is self-righteous, self-absorbed, prideful, but the pagan is as well. Paul addresses their idolatry in Athens in Acts chapter 17. This is what men do. It's what Rory Rogers does. And I'm confronted by the word of God every day as I open my Bible up. Rory, you're doing it again. Lay it down. It's by grace. We try to set up our own righteousness. That phrase in the King James Version, how it says that they're going about their own righteousness. And it implies great earnestness. When a man says, I'm going about a thing, I'm going about tearing up my yard and putting in an underground sprinkler system. What does that mean? It's mean he's already sweating. He's got his shirt sleeves rolled up. 
got his gloves on already. He's going about something. And that's what we do. We go about establishing our own righteousness. We do well to heed Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all like an unclean thing. I'm not looking at any of you. This is me too. We are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Before God's goodness and righteousness, we try to establish our own innocence through what we've done. And we look like a, the literal translation is a menstrual rag. A filthy rag before God in all of his purity and holiness and rightness. You err, my friend. If you attempt to raise yourself up before God and show yourself to be good in his presence. Jesus tells the parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And he spoke it to a group of people who trusted in themselves, thinking that they were righteous and they despised others for not being righteous. And Jesus says two people went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. That's a religious leader whose whole job was to keep 613 commandments Sunday through Sunday. Those were the fun guys to be around. Well, that was one of the guys that went to pray. The other was a tax collector, considered one of the sinners of sinners of his day. Not anymore, though. Good thing. So you have a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee stands in the temple and prays this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. <coughs> Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted have you humbled yourself before the mighty hand of God <clears throat> confessing your sin and receiving his mercy or are you self will seeking to establish your own righteousness before God. Nobody is so blind as the man who does not want to see. Nobody is so deaf as the man who doesn't want to hear. Are you here today and you don't even want to know? Are you willfully ignorant of God's righteousness because you want to have your name be great? I genuinely and lovingly fear for you and plead for you to humble yourself that you might be exalted 
under the mighty hand of God. John Calvin justly comments, the first step to obtaining the righteousness of God is to renounce our own righteousness. Have you done that? Renounce your own righteousness. What will you say on the day that you stand before the throne of God and give an account for your life? When that moment of decision comes where the judge either lets you come into the joy that he's prepared or send you away into the lake of fire to burn with the weeping and gnashing of teeth, what will you say? I really tried, God. I had a good heart. My intentions were, I feel they were well. And God will say, you know what? I knew that you were lustful and covetous and materialistic and prideful. You were an adulterer in your heart. You had a fantasy that just wouldn't stop. You worshipped family rather than me. You worshipped your property rather than me. You worshipped your spinning rims rather than me. I know your heart, and you are not righteous. I never knew you away from me. And you'll be cast into the lake that burns with fire. Or you can stand before the Lord having already bowed the knee to him on earth, having already humbled yourself, having already renounced your own righteousness, and you can say, Lord God, I am justified, not by works that I've done, but by the precious blood of Jesus and by his gift of grace in my life. Paul confronts ignorance. Paul confronts self-will and willful ignorance. And thirdly, in verse 3, and I believe we'll only make it through verse 4 today. Man, I'm so ambitious. Just to ease you a little bit. Thirdly, he confronts the rebellious heart. The end of verse 3, it says that they have not submitted to the righteousness of God in their ignorance, in their being self-willed and trying to establish their own righteousness, they, you, we, do not submit, do not humble ourselves and obey the righteousness of God, the truth of the gospel. We're like the church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, that says, I am rich. I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And Jesus says, you don't know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And I counsel you that you would buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And that you would anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. You know, a verse that correlates with that comes out of Isaiah, and I love it. Isaiah says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to me and buy water without price. Come to me and buy 
food without Christ. Come and take your fill. Come to me. It's free. Jesus says it in Revelation. Come. You're poor, blind, miserable, naked, you're wretched. I, I pray you would see that. And I, I'll give you, he says, I'll give you gold refined in the fire, pure gold. You'll be rich. I'll give you fine white garments. You'll be clothed. I'll give you eyes sad. You'll see. And maybe you're just catching a glimmer of the light this morning. You're just... You're just comprehending a fraction of what is being said. Praise God. Praise God that he's speaking. You're, you're a little confused still. I, I don't know everything, but I, I'm beginning to get what Pastor Rory said. It's not about me. It's not about what I do. Praise God. You're getting it. Right now, just pray. Just pray, God, help me to get it. God, help me to see my inadequacy before you. And God, I just ask right now that you give me that gold that you talked about. That you give me the white garments that you talked about. God, that you give me the eye staff that I wouldn't just see a little flicker or like the blind man Jesus healed, that I wouldn't just see men walking around like trees, kind of blurry, but that you'd be able to see clearly. A man who's in rebellion and is not submitted to God's righteousness is like a criminal who's not submitted to being pardoned. He's like a sick man who will not submit to being made well. He's a man with a broken leg who won't submit to being healed. He's a poor beggar in the street who won't submit to being made a gentleman. Is that you this morning? People are so proud, no matter what their status. Harlots are proud of their self-righteousness. Drunkards are proud of their righteousness. The, the lowest beggar in the streets is more prideful than the Lord Mayor sometimes. So don't think you're above them. How prideful are you and who you are and your status and your dignity? What are you bringing to the table that, as John Calvin would say, you need to renounce right now? That you could receive God's righteousness. Just as Daniel read Jeremiah's prophecy and realized why the nation of Judah was in captivity. And after he read of the sins of the people, he ripped his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and fasted and cried out and repented of his personal sin and the sin of his nation. And he cried out in fasting that God would forgive, not for Daniel's name's sake, nor for Judah's name's sake, but for the name of God who had created and elected and showed favor to Israel. They might be saved. So today, if you have a weapon of rebellion at your side, throw it down. A man that submits to the righteousness of God is the man that wins the victory. In closing, let's look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
means the end of the law. This doesn't mean that he makes void the law, but rather he fulfills it, as Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. As John Scott says, but now that Christ has accomplished our salvation by his death and resurrection, he has terminated the law in that role. The law doesn't save. Once we grasp the decisive nature of Christ's saving work, writes Dr. Leon Morris, we see the irrelevance of all legalism. Do you understand what Jesus has done? That the body of the Son of God was stripped naked, struck in the face with the palms of hands, beat in the face with rods, scourged, with a Roman cat of nine tails, exposing his vital organs just through the whipping, carried a 90-pound patibulum crossbar of a cross some half mile to his place of execution, where they put some seven-inch nails in the nerves of his wrist. Doctors say this causes lockjaw. The pain is so excruciating. The word excruciate comes from crucifixion. Those nails in his wrists and in his feet. The crown of thorns digging into his brow. And the spear that went into his side. Producing blood and water. Evidence of a collapsed heart cavity. And you would come. And I would come. With a self-righteous legalism. Paul says in Galatians, if that's the case, then Christ died in vain. He wouldn't have had to die. And so Paul subverts in chapter 10 our self-righteousness. And every one of us falls into it. When he confronts it and when we confront each other, it is not pretty. We get so defensive. How dare you how dare you tell me that I'm wrong? The gospel strips us naked so that we have nothing to offer God. But when it confronts us, it does so in a healing way. Let's pray. Kendra, you can come on up. Lord God, as your word has confronted us, Lord, you've confronted the pagan who has shot out the lip against you, Lord, who's rebelled against you, Lord. You've confronted the self-righteous religious person who was even raised in the church, perhaps homeschooled or went to a Christian school, perhaps part of a family that has a ministry background. And Lord, we've all found ourselves to be unjust and unrighteous in your sight. Lord, we surrender as we no longer have an excuse of ignorance, God. We surrender our self-will and our self-rightness. We renounce any good that we could bring and say, simply to the cross I cling, to your goodness, to your finished work. And if you're here today and God has brought you here by his goodness, by his grace, he's shown you that glimmer of truth. He 
he's able to enable you today to act on that. That you might respond to this good news. That you might humble yourself and say, I am a sinner. And I need this Savior. I need the forgiveness and the healing that comes through Jesus. If that's you today, God's brought you here and you want to respond to his love, to his righteousness, and you would like him to place all of his righteousness onto your name and onto your account and upon your shoulders, and you would like him today to remove all of your sin and shame and blasphemy and hatred and murder in your heart, and lusts and all the idols that you've raised up the idol of your kids, the idol of your pets the idol of your craft you would have him take all of your sin and shame and place it upon him carries our sin and shame 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God's brought you here today to hear this message. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I confess you before my Father in heaven and before the angel. But if you'll deny me before men and act like I never spoke to you at that part, then I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. I implore you today, don't deny him. Today, if you've heard his voice, respond to his mercy. Respond to his grace. And if you would like to be saved today, if you would like to be forgiven of your sin, if you would like to know that God no longer sees your sin, if you would like to know that when you die, you will not go to the lake of fire. But you'll enter into the joy that he's been preparing for 2,000 years. Right now, I just call you to respond just by lifting up your hand where you're at. Just lift up your hand and just say, Rory, that's me. God's brought me here for today to hear this message. He's confronted me. He's subverted my self-righteousness. I love to cling to his righteousness. Just know as you lift up your hand, the Lord sees you. The Lord sees you. God sees you as well in you. Just right now, as you just respond, you're saying, Lord, that's me. I'm not going to lie to you, God. I hear you. Clinging to the cross right now. I'm receiving forgiveness of all of those things that I've done. The list is long. Right now, as you respond, just, just receive that washing and receive that your heart is being born again. He's taking out a heart of stone and he's replacing it with a heart of flesh. Jeremiah says that we'll now be able to beat to the rhythm of God's heart. We'll be able to know God. We'll be able to hear God. We'll want God and we'll want the things of God. Right now, just enjoy that. You are being born again right now. Anybody else? 
then this is for you too, churchy people. Don't rest on your churchiness. Don't rest on your religiosity. Rest in the cross today. Is there anybody else? The Lord sees you. God sees you. Scriptures tell us when one sinner turns from his way, it's that the angels in heaven rejoice. And they are rejoicing this morning. Would anybody else like to join the number today? And then you would be able to say, I am safe. I am safe. God sees you. Anybody else? From hiding under the shadow of just religion, accomplishment, heritage, or even in just the lie that you're a good person and you've got a good heart and you mean well. Even right now, you have a legal aid coming to your mind saying, no, you're good. Do not raise your hand. Do not respond. You're good. Don't worry about it. This guy's off his rocker up there. That would be the enemy. He would love to touch in the lake of fire. Here, the call of the Holy Spirit this morning. The call of evil salvation. Anybody else? Chapter 9 ends with it. Romans 10 says it, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will by no means be put to shame. By no means be put to shame. If you raised your hands, just by faith right now, just say, thank you, God, for regenerating me, for helping me be born again. Just in your heart, just pray, God, I thank you for your grace that Lori's talked about. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the blood. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.